Well, this morning, we have a long end to a brief study in the book of uh, Leviticus. So we do have a lot of ground to cover this morning. I want to jump right into uh, Leviticus chapters uh, um, 17 through 27. So if you have a Bible, I think you'll be helped to have that open as we jump around a bit. I'll try to point out where we are uh, in the different chapters. I think it's important to remember the big picture. Uh, we, we need to place these 11 chapters in their proper context or else they're going to seem uh, quite strange to us. But you remember the Bible opens with God creating a paradise, uh, the Garden of Eden, and he places the first humans within it. And the picture that the Bible gives us of the world is one of flourishing and one of relationship. So Adam and Eve, the first humans, they enjoy God's presence with them in the garden. Uh, we read in Genesis chapter 3 that God would walk with them in the garden. So put a pin in that idea. That's important. Uh, God condescended to be with his creation. He didn't just fling the earth out into space and then stay at a distance, but he, he came to be with humanity in a way that they could relate to him and, and interact with him. And it was God's presence that made the Garden of Eden paradise. So God is the source of all life and love and beauty and joy. And so to be with him, to be living under his authority, it is everything that we were created to be. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And as a result, sin and death and scarcity were introduced into the world. Uh, the first humans were cast outside the Garden of Eden, outside the presence of God. And, and it seemed for a moment like all things were lost. But God wasn't defeated. He called a man named Abram and promised that he would make Abram's descendants a great nation that he would actually bless the whole world through them, and that he would eventually bring them into a land that flourished in ways that sounded a lot like that garden of old. That nation, the nation of Israel, would live there under his rule and enjoy his presence. The idea was that it would be a, a new paradise of sorts. That, that, in a sense, is the book of Genesis right there. Uh, we see then in the book of Exodus that the descendants of Abraham, the people of Israel, they were eventually enslaved in the nation of Israel. I'm sorry, the nation of Egypt for centuries. But, but despite that hiccup, God was not defeated. He raised up Moses to deliver them from Egypt and brought them out into the desert to tell them how to live. That, in short, is the, the book of Exodus. And Exodus, as we've pointed out a few times in this uh, study in Leviticus, Exodus ends with the construction of this magnificent tent called the tabernacle, made according to God's very specific instructions, made with lots of different furniture and symbolism that points us back to the Garden of Eden. The idea is this, is, this massive tent, this tabernacle, is where God's people will come and enjoy his presence. They will come and, and be restored, as it were, to paradise. But there's a problem. The final verses of Exodus tell us that God's, God's glory, his presence filled this tabernacle, this giant tent. But Moses and Aaron, the representatives of God's people, they can't go in. Paradise is right there in this tent, but they can't get near it. And so the book of Leviticus represents an answer to that problem. Uh, through the, the sacrifices and the priesthood 
and the cleanliness code that we thought about. Finally, as we thought about last week, the Day of Atonement ritual. Sin, that thing that keeps humanity out of God's presence, sin could be dealt with. Sin could be atoned for. Uh, The people could be made fit in a provisional way to return to God's presence. And so now as we come down from the peak of Leviticus 16 and that Day of Atonement, the question remains, what does it look like then for the people of Israel to live in the land in which the Lord was taking them? The book of Numbers, the next book in the Bible after Leviticus, begins the story of Israel heading into the land of Canaan to drive out the people there and take possession of it. And so the question that needs to be answered in our passage for this morning, sort of between the Day of Atonement and, and beginning to enter into the land, right, in light of God's mighty acts of redemption, his deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt, his provision of salvation through substitution, as we thought about last week, his declared intention to take them into a land that flourishes and is peaceful, in light of all of that, how should Israel live? And the answer that we're going to see in our passage for this morning, Leviticus 17 to 27, is holiness. The people of Israel, as they go into the land, must live as holy people. These chapters, chapter 17 to 27, are referred to by scholars as the holiness code. And in them, we see the Lord is speaking to his people about what life should look like in the land into which he was taking them. What we see here is that God's people are to live as a holy people. That's the message of this passage. And so in order to try and get a sense of this large section of Scripture, I'd like us to look at three things, consider three things from these chapters. First, let's see the purpose of holiness. Second, we'll look to see the shape of holiness. And then finally, briefly at the end, we'll see the means of holiness. So the purpose, the shape, and the means of holiness. So let's start by considering the purpose of holiness. And I want to, I want to get this clear at the outset of our time because I think there's a very wrong and ultimately very unhelpful way to preach about and to listen to and to think about a sermon about holiness. And I think that is to, to consider holiness as basically bad news. Right? There's a way of reading about the need for holiness in the Bible and the way that holiness sets us off from the world and the way that holiness requires effort and self-control. And it's, it's possible, and maybe even our first reaction is to think, ah, that's no fun at all. Right? It, the temptation is to look at the world out there with people just doing whatever it is they want to do and indulging whatever desires they happen to have And the temptation is to think, that's the good life. That's paradise. And if you look at the world that way, that means that holiness is kind of the price you have to pay to get into heaven someday. Like you give up all the good things now in order to get good things later. But I think if we understand the purpose of holiness, why it is that God insists that his people be holy, I think we'll see that nothing could actually be further from the truth. So if you start... In chapter 26. So if you flip over to Leviticus 26, starting in verse 3, we read that the Lord said to the people of Israel through Moses this He said, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, 
then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you, and make you fruitful, and multiply you, and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke, and made you walk erect." So you see the Lord holds out this picture of great blessing to his people. There in verses 4 and 5 and again in verse 10, you have the promise of abundant food and general prosperity. The Lord says, look, your biggest problem is going to be how to harvest all of this, right? Finding a place to store all of the grain and the grapes. Your, Your biggest stressor is how you're going to eat through everything in time to make room for the new harvest, Right For people who had lived as slaves in Egypt and were now in the desert, you could imagine how wonderful that promise would have sounded to them. In verses 6 to 8, there's the promise of peace and freedom from danger. Again, for people who had just been chased through the desert by Pharaoh's army, who were about to head into conflict with the Canaanites, this would have been a delightful idea. Right? What, What could be better? Who wouldn't sign up for that program? Life in a place of peace, and fruitful abundance with no needs unmet, no threats internal or external. Right, this makes sense of what we read in Leviticus 18, verse 5. He says, you, the Lord says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. The Lord summarizes it here. If the people will be holy and do what the Lord has commanded, they will live. In the context here, living means enjoying God's pleasure, enjoying the promised land and all of the blessings that God wants to give to his people. Living here means experiencing the peace and prosperity the Lord would bring to them in the promised land. But notice there in verse 3 of chapter 26, all of these things are contingent on Israel's holiness. If you walk in my statutes, it says there, God will do this for his people, but only if they're holy. Now, maybe that doesn't sound right to you. I mean, doesn't that make it sound like God's love and his blessings are are transactional? Like God's inviting Israel into some kind of cosmic quid pro quo where we give God what he wants, and for some reason he wants holiness, and in return he gives us what we want, which is to be rich and comfortable. Right? Isn't that just the prosperity gospel that they preach on TV? Right? Do these things and God will bless you? 
It's a good question, and I think it highlights why we don't really think of holiness as good news, right? Because if, if that were the case, if this really were just a quid pro quo, it would make holiness the cost that we pay, the price we pay to get what we want. And, and who doesn't want to reduce the amount that they have to pay to get the things they want? I think we ask questions like that of a text like this because we failed to notice the point. The, the point is there in chapter 26, verses 11 to 12. Remember what the Lord said. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Brothers and sisters, that's what we have to see. God's call for his people to live holy lives comes in the context of his intention to be present among them. God will make his dwelling place among the people of Israel. In the tabernacle, in that sort of large elaborate tent, and then as the centuries unfold in the more permanent structure of the temple, God will be there with Israel. He, as he says, will be their God and they will be his people. That's the language of covenant and, and relationship. There's going to be a special relationship between God and Israel, a, a mutual commitment, a devotion between the Lord and his people. He says there that he will walk among them. And that verb form there is, in the original Hebrew is very unusual. It's the very same one that we see back in the book of Genesis to indicate the Lord walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. That's what the Lord is holding out to Israel. Nothing less than his presence recreating and reforming the conditions of paradise. God is going to put his people in a flourishing, peaceful place. And he will be present with them, walking among them to bless and protect and delight. And friends, that's why the people need to be holy. Not because for some reason God just exacts that as the cost of blessing, but because God himself will be there. Right? If we've seen nothing else in the book of Leviticus, if you don't remember anything from the book of Leviticus except this, you remember that it is not safe for sinful people to be in the presence of a holy God. And so if God is going to be there walking among his people in relationship with them, there must be holiness. Right? That shows us why holiness is good news. Again, if God's presence means abundance and delight and love and life and beauty and peace, then the sin that his presence drives away must be the opposite of all of that, right? I think it's an indication of just how warped we are, that, that we think that, that the good life is freedom to indulge, to indulge your anger and greed and envy and lust, when in reality, those are the very things that have ruined this world. Those are the things that make us miserable. Those are the things that lead us to physical and spiritual death. And so when God calls his people to leave those things behind and to pursue holiness, it's good to be reminded, as we say so often, he's not taking away the cookies, he's taking away the rat poison. Right? He, he wants to remove the thing from their hands that's killing them so that he can give them something so much better. He wants them to be holy so that he can be present with them, which will mean loading their arms with blessings and love and life. Notice here that holiness doesn't establish the relationship between God and Israel. It's very clear that relationship 
has already been created. There in verse 13, the Lord says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. God reminds them, I have already delivered you. The message of Leviticus is not be holy and God will save you. The message is the message of the whole Bible. God has saved you. Therefore, be holy. God says, I've, I've freed you from the cruel chains of slavery so that you could enjoy me and my presence. I mean, how beautiful is that last sentence there? He says, I have broken the bars of your yoke. You were a slave. And I, in my love, shattered what was holding you down. He says, you were oppressed and bowed over. I made you to to stand and walk erect, right? You see the logic. If Yahweh, if the Lord being there with his people means freedom, then why would they ever want to do anything inconsistent with his presence? Holiness is the only thing that makes sense in light of God's salvation. And because that's true, we see that in this passage, if the people of Israel decide to reject holiness, if they decide... to to choose not to live under God's law and statutes and rules, if they essentially reenact Adam and Eve's insane decision to attempt to live life out from under his rule, we see in this passage that they will be expelled from the promised land. They will be kicked out of this new paradise that the Lord is giving to them, just like our first parents were kicked out from the Garden of Eden. So again, if you look in chapter 26, you see... Uh, that the Lord promises all sorts of escalating discipline against the nation if they rebel against him. There in verses 16 to 17, he says he will visit them with disease and calamity. Right, And the idea is that the Lord will do that, not because he hates them, but because he wants to give them a taste of what their sin is bringing upon them so that they'll turn from it. He says in verse 18, if that doesn't work, if they still won't turn from their sin, he will bring yet worse calamities on them all in an effort to secure their repentance. But if they continue to reject him, eventually we read all the way down there in chapter 26, verse 33, that the Lord will bring this project to a kind of terrible conclusion. He says, I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheathe the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. If they will not be holy... God says they won't be able to live in the land. Right, this, this is picked up in a, a vivid image that is repeated throughout this passage. The idea that if the people will not be holy, the land will vomit them out. So you see there in Leviticus 20, verse 22. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. In chapter 18, this idea is unpacked further in Uh, Verse 24, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity. And the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations, so the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. 
Right? The idea is that the Canaanites, the people living in the land, the people the Lord was going to displace in order to give Israel possession of the land, their sin, their unholiness had polluted the land. So the pictures here, they're almost like a virus that the, the land had to vomit out. And so the Lord warns Israel, this project of recreation, it's not aimed at removing one corrupt and sinful people just to replace them with another. God says, if you won't be holy, you too will be removed. Now, before we move on, let's just stop and think for a second about how this applies to us as God's people now. It's true that we're not looking forward to living in the physical land of Canaan. But as the Bible continues on, we see that actually that promise that God was making to Israel was just a shadow. What we see as the Bible moves on is that God is actually promising to do something far greater for his people. That when the Lord Jesus returns, God promises to make all things new. To make a new heavens and a new earth, a new world where everything flourishes. Where there will be peace. Where God will be present with his people in a way that is more immediate than even Israel could have ever hoped for. And for our purposes, it's important for us to see as we look forward to that promise that holiness will be no less important there than it was back in the book of Leviticus. If we are to live with God forever, we will need to be holy. This is why Hebrews 12, 24 in the New Testament tells us to strive for holiness without which no one will see the Lord Brothers and sisters, heaven is a holy place. The new heavens and the new earth that God will one day create, they will be a holy place without any violence, hatred, perversion, anger, envy, or gossip. And so if you have no longing for holiness now, if you love the things that God detests, and the best world that you could imagine is not where you're free from sin, but a world where you're free to sin, then just acknowledge you wouldn't even want to be with the Lord in eternity. You won't want to be in a world of eternal beauty that God's going to bring. No, God's people must be holy now because we'll be holy then. And that brings us to our second point, that is the shape of holiness. If the purpose of Israel's holiness is so that God can dwell in their midst, then let's stop and ask, what does that holiness look like? This is really what most of this passage is, is dealing with. Let me suggest six things that we see in this passage. They aren't all equally important, but I think broadly these six things cover most of the ground here. So as we think, what does holiness mean or what does it look like? First, we see that holiness simply means keeping the Lord's statutes. I start with that because we've already assumed it a bit in what we've already read. So just in the passages I've already read to you, in Leviticus 18, verse 5, the Lord says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. In chapter 18, verse 26, we saw this, But you shall keep my statutes and my rules. In chapter 20, verse 22, you shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them. Chapter 26, verse 3, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them. Right, you get the point. It's not subtle. Israel's holiness meant obeying the Lord's commands. 
It meant following his instructions. It meant keeping his statutes. The opposite of that is described in chapter 26, verse 43, where the the Lord warns Israel not to abhor his statutes. To be holy is to delight in doing what God commands. We see this in chapter 19. If you you flip there, we won't read all of these verses, but you'll at least be able to see uh, the, the larger section here. In chapter 19 verses 19 to 37, you have a list of various rules and statutes. So there in verse 19, it starts with, you shall keep my statutes. And then all the way down in verse 37, it ends with, you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules. And what you see in between those two kind of bookends are are lots of commandments. Things like honor the elderly in verse 32. Uh, Commandments in verses 35 and 36 about being honest and just. Uh, Some of these statutes that are listed here are are more of a a religious or symbolic nature. So verse 30 reminds them that they must keep the Sabbath, that they must treat the Lord's sanctuary with reverence. All right, fair enough, no surprise there. But there are some things in these statutes that honestly seem a bit random to us. So if you look at Leviticus 19.19, you shall keep my statutes. Okay, check, we got that. You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Then down in verse 23, when you come into the land and plant any kind of tree for food, then you shall regard its fruit as forbidden. Three years it shall be forbidden to you. It must not be eaten. And in the fourth year, all its fruit shall be holy, an offering of praise to the Lord. But in the fifth year, you may eat of its fruit to increase its yield for you. I am the Lord your God. Add into those instructions what we see in chapter 25 about a a land Sabbath. This idea that when Israel went into the land, they weren't to plant or harvest any crops in the seventh year. You see that in chapter 25, verses 1 to 7. The Lord promised he would provide in the sixth year all the crops that they needed for the sixth year itself, for the seventh year where the land lay fallow, all the way until the crops of the eighth year came in. Then you get a a year of jubilee uh, a bit later in chapter 25. Basically the idea that every 50th year, think of it as kind of a a super Sabbath, after the seventh seven, right? The 50th year. It was a year of jubilee, a year of liberation. Uh, Any slaves were to be freed. Any land that had Uh, been sold in the past 49 years would go back to its original owners, right? You have all of these rules, and there's different reasons for for all of them, right? So the the prohibition against wearing cloth of different fabrics, it was was meant to to be a symbol to the people that they were to be sort of wholehearted and and unified and and pure, right? The the Jubilee was there to, to make sure that that any kind of generational poverty would sort of have a, a, a firm stopping place at the 50th year, that everything would sort of be reset economically in Israel. All right, for our purposes, just notice being holy meant that God's people would listen to his commands and keep them. It could well be that they didn't really see the point. Like, why can't I eat from a tree the first four years? Uh, perhaps they didn't think that not growing crops would be a good economic strategy. Maybe it didn't seem fair to them that they would have to give the land back to its original owner. 
But here, God is giving his people his instructions, his statutes, and he's calling them simply to do what he told them to do. So in a very fundamental way, holiness means obeying the Lord's commands, his statutes. The second thing we see here of our our list of six things is that holiness means proper worship. So it's clear that the people of Israel were constantly tempted by idolatry and false worship. There in chapter 17, verse 5, it seems that people have been offering sacrifices in the open fields. In 17, verse 7, it mentions that they were whoring after and offering sacrifices to goat demons. I don't think anyone would need to tell me not to do that, but the people of Israel needed to hear it, right? The Lord instructs them here. No more goat demons. You only offer sacrifices in the tabernacle as I've instructed, right? Sort of cracking down on uh, irreverent and false worship. There in chapter 19, you have a restatement of really the, the theme of the first two commandments in Leviticus 19 verse 4. Do not turn to idols or make for yourself any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. So God is, is restating his, his demand that he alone be worshipped by his people. In, in chapter 17 verses 10 to 14 you have prohibition against eating the blood of an animal. It says there in verse 14 of chapter 17 that the life of the creature is in its blood, right? It's through the blood of bulls and goats that the Lord would make atonement for his people uh, in the tabernacle, and so they were not to eat it. We know it wasn't uncommon for people in ancient Near Eastern cultures to drink animal blood as part of their worship celebrations. The idea was a a sort of magical one, that since the, the life of the animal was in the blood, you could drink it and you would sort of take possession of the animal's strength and power. This prohibition fits with the sort of general prohibition against all sorcery and, and fortune-telling and occult practices. So there at the end of Leviticus 19.26 in the second half of that chapter, you shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. There in chapter 19, verse 31, do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out and so make yourself unclean by them. I and the Lord your God. In general, these warnings are telling the people of Israel not to embrace or indulge the worship practices of the Canaanite nations around them. So again, in chapter 19, verses 27 to 28, you shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. You shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. Then in chapter 21, verse 5, speaking of the priests, they shall not make bald patches on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts on their body. It seems from the context that these were all characteristic ways that the nations around them worshipped their false gods. And so the Lord forbids that from his people. A holiness is not worshipping in any way that suits us. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that we can approach God any way that might appeal to us or do anything that might occur to us, but only in the ways the Lord has appointed. That brings us to our third thing to see, and that is that holiness means being different. Now look there in chapter 18, in verses 1 to 4. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, 
to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. And then in chapter 20, verses 23 to 24, you shall not walk in the customs of the nations that I'm driving out before you. For they did all these things and therefore I detested them. But I've said to you, you shall inherit their land and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God who has separated you from the peoples. I won't say too much on this because I think those passages make it clear. The Lord was calling his people out. Their holiness would make them different. They weren't supposed to just be like the nations around them. Otherwise, what was the point of God calling them out? And brothers and sisters, that's a good reminder for us as followers of Christ that we should expect that God's salvation, his calling us out of the world, it should set us off from the world. It should create distance between us and the culture around us. Our witness to the world isn't how similar we are to them, but just how different. As God's people, we should love differently, worship differently, suffer differently, think differently. And we shouldn't be surprised when following Jesus means that we're at odds with the world around us and the people in it. And so it's worth asking yourself if you can point to any areas in your life where you're different, where you stick out, where you don't fit in. I mean, to be sure, the goal is not for us to live in some sort of Christian bubble or subculture. It's not for us to completely withdraw from the world around us. The goal is, as we live in this world, we should be able to, to show the world ways in which being God's people has made us different. That leads us, I think, naturally to the fourth point of holiness that we see in this passage, and that is sexual purity. Uh, there is perhaps no place where Christians will be more obviously departing from the world around us than when it comes to sexual ethics. There's no other arena in which we stick out quite this much. And quite a bit of this passage deals with this issue. Really, all of chapter 18 deals with various prohibitions. In chapter 20, verses 10 to 21, you see various consequences for all different kinds of sexual immorality, which began at, at exile and went all the way up to capital punishment. Right? The point being, these things were very serious. Sex is important. And people cannot be holy if they're living in sexual immorality. Now, in terms of what exactly is prohibited, let me just run through this with a, a light touch here. In chapter 18, verse 6, you have kind of a summary statement. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. So that's a sort of euphemism or idiom. I am the Lord. So that's chapter 18, verse 6. Then in verses 7 to 18, you have a lot of specifics about what that could look like, uh, including all sorts of prohibitions against all kinds of relations amongst family members. In, in chapter 18, verse 19, you have a law that seems to connect back to the, the laws we saw a few weeks ago about discharges. In, in chapter 18, verse 20, relations with your neighbor's wife were forbidden. Uh, verse 21 of chapter 18 forbids giving your children as an offering to Molech. So Molech was one of the Canaanite deities. This could refer to child sacrifices. 
So we know that the Canaanites practiced child sacrifice as part of their worship of Molech. Or it could be talking about the Canaanite practice of giving their children sort of to the cult, to the, the temple of Molech to serve there as prostitutes in his worship. Right, that, that second meaning is probably more likely given that this is a, located in a bunch of laws about sexual ethics. But in any event, the Lord in chapter 20, verses 1 to 5, declares the absolute harshest punishments for anyone who does this, anyone who would give their child over to Molech. There's even exile threatened against someone who, who sees someone else do it and doesn't have that person put to death. Right, the Lord couldn't be more clear. That is absolutely forbidden. In chapter 18, verse 22, you have a prohibition against a man lying with a man as with a woman. In chapter 18, verse 23, you have a prohibition against sexual relations with animals. Right? So you get the, the sense of the things that are, are, are forbidden here. Now, a couple of thoughts on this list. Again, the context here is that Israel is meant to be holy, to be set apart from the Lord and distinct from the nations. And so this list is not merely a list of things that kind of grind God's gears. These are things that were actually being practiced in Canaan. So we read there in chapter 18, verse 24. Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, that is all of these sexual perversions, these nations I'm driving out before you have become unclean. Then down in verse 30, so keep my charge never to practice any of these abominable customs that were practiced before you and never to make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Now, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that most of the world around us finds this ridiculous. The idea that God cares to invigilate people's bedroom behavior. In fact, if you're a West Wing fan, you may remember that an entire episode was devoted to mocking the idea that you would take these commands seriously. Right? We as a society like to pride ourselves that we live in an era of unprecedented sexual liberty. And that might be true in certain ways, but I'm, I'm strangely encouraged by the fact that the Lord felt like he needed to tell his people not to do some of these things. Because that must mean that on some level they were going to be tempted by them. My guess is that even the most sexually progressive kinds of people in America would find the, the behaviors of the Canaanites shocking and repulsive. You can read chapter 18 for yourself and just see some of the sorts of things that are forbidden. So just notice, it's not a question of whether we have standards for proper sexual conduct. Right? Of course we do. Right? My guess, again, is that most of the things listed here in Leviticus 18 would seem like an abomination to most people in our day. And let's be honest, we as a society, we condemn all sorts of behavior in this arena. It's almost our national pastime to cancel people or to, to, to spread scandals about these kinds of things. No, the, the only question we need to answer is not whether we have standards for this kind of conduct. It's who sets the standard. Right? The thing that we might be tempted to mock in our society is the idea that someone other than I should set that standard. But if nothing else, in these in these chapters, we see the Lord asserting his authority. He is the lawgiver. He sets the standard for his people. As the creator, as the redeemer of his people, he's the one who determines what's right and wrong. And what the Lord calls his people to is holiness, to be set aside for his purposes. 
And God said he created sex to be, to be enjoyed in the context of marriage, in the context of the marriage of one man and one woman. And so any other expression of sexuality is off limits to his people. And that brings us to the fifth thing for us to see about holiness, and that is holiness is love for others. So if you look in Leviticus chapter 19, in verses 9 to 18, you see all sorts of instructions about how the people were supposed to live together. There in verses 9 to 10, they were to leave some of their crops for the poor to come along and glean. If you're familiar with the Old Testament book of Ruth, you know this becomes an important plot point later. There in verses 11 to 12 of chapter 19, they were told not to steal or lie. Uh, verse 13, they were not to hold back wages. Uh, verse 14, they weren't to take advantage of the deaf and the blind. In verses 15 to 16, they were to be just in their legal dealings in the courts. They couldn't show partiality to the rich and the powerful. Right? And, it, and just to make it clear that these holiness laws are not just a matter of external behavior, uh, the people of Israel are told there in verses 17 to 18 not to bear a grudge, not to hate their fellow Israelite. It, it all comes to a beautiful conclusion there at the end of uh, Leviticus 19, 18, where it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Again, we won't spend much time on this. It does flow throughout the passage in laws about caring for the poor and foreigners. It's not too complicated or controversial, but I would just point out that holiness, the kind of holiness being enjoined on God's people here, it's not something we should consider oppressive or joyless. Right? I think we're tempted to read Leviticus and to read these laws, to read this holiness code, and envision some kind of Taliban-like society. Right, where everyone's walking around all day terrified that they might do something to get themselves killed. Right, we might think of it as some sort of handmaid's tale, this repressive religious regime. But what you see here is exactly the opposite. Remember what it is that the Lord is holding out to his people. Abundance, joy, peace, prosperity, safety, happiness. And what does he command them to do? To be loving. To not to use these rules as a way of exploiting the weak and gaining power, not to create a two-tier system where the people at the top do whatever they want while the people at the bottom have to keep the rules. No, he wants them to love their neighbor, to love the foreigner among them, to love the one who can't give you anything. He says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Right? You can see why that's essential to the paradise that God wants to establish. Right? If there's hatred, if there's grudges, if there's animosity, everything's just going to fall apart again. And so God's people are called to love. And that brings us to the sixth thing for us to see about the shape of holiness, and that is that holiness looks like the Lord. Right? That's appropriate. If, if loving your neighbor is the second greatest commandment, according to Jesus, then loving the Lord your God is the first. And what we see in these chapters is that holiness is the way we love the Lord. Because these rules, these statutes here, it's not a bunch of randomly generated behaviors. Right? God isn't pulling things out of a hat and saying, okay, this is forbidden, this is okay. All right, homosexuality, no. Um, but, you know, uh, wearing different kinds of clothes, no, not that one. God's not just sort of pulling things out at random and saying yes or no. No, he's giving this code to his people because he wants them to reflect his character. Uh, holiness 
is connected to the character of God. So we see there in Leviticus 19, verse 2, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am holy. In chapter 20, verse 7, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Why should you be holy? Because he is our God. The Lord is loving. He is pure. He is set off from all that is wicked and perverse and cruel and selfish. And so his people must be also. They have to live in light of and in ways that are consistent with his salvation. He reminds them there in chapter 19, verse 36, that he's redeemed them out of Egypt. So how can you oppress one another when I've delivered you from oppression? Right? How can you defraud one another when I've delivered you from slavery? If you look in chapter 19, again, you see this repeated refrain, I am the Lord your God. Right? These statutes come to the people of Israel with this, this sort of drumbeat, I am the Lord your God. It, it protects us from this idea that these are just a bunch of random rules. Right? No, the, Leviticus is giving a guidebook to the nation of Israel, how they can reflect the character of God to the world around them. And so the Lord says here, I am the Lord your God. Do this, I am the Lord your God. Right? If Adam and Eve were created to reflect the image of God to the world, and if they abandoned that project to pursue their own desires, here Israel is something like a, a reconstituted new humanity. Israel's being called to restart the project, being called to do what Adam and Eve failed to do. They're being called to listen to God's word and to live according to that command and so reflect God's character to the world. And here the promise in Leviticus is that if they will, they will enjoy paradise in the promised land. And that brings us to the final thing for us to see this morning, and that is the means of holiness. These, the other categories of laws we see in this passage, and there are a bunch of other things, they're related to uh, the sacrifices in the tabernacle. So you see that in chapter 22, verses 17 to 30. You see it in chapter 24, verses 1 to 9. All of chapter 27 devoted to the, the sort of practices of sacrifice in the tabernacle. You also have laws about the holiness of the priests there in chapter 21. You see the priests are called to an even higher standard of, of purity and holiness and ritual cleanliness than the people. You also see lots of laws about time. The people are called on to observe weekly Sabbaths, right, days of rest and worship, along with yearly festivals and holidays. You see that particularly in chapter 23. Now, you might ask, then, what do those things have to do with holiness? Sacrifices in the tabernacle, the priesthood, the festivals. I think the answer is everything. Because the thing is that holiness, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, the holiness that Israel is being called to here in these chapters, it's not something that God's people are going to be able to generate on their own. What Israel is not being called to do is to sort of work harder, try to do better, and by the force of their own will, be pleasing to God. Right? Look at the repeated phrase that we see in our passage in, in chapter 20, verse 8. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Chapter 22, verse 9. 
They shall therefore keep my charge, lest they bear sin for it and die, thereby when they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Chapter 22, verse 16, the second half, for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Chapter 22, verse 32, the second half, I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Brothers and sisters, it is the Lord who makes his people holy. It is the Lord who sets them apart and who sanctifies them. He's the one who gives them his love for one another. His salvation is the pattern for how they are to treat one another. His standards are the ones they are to observe. And so how does that happen? How does God sanctify his people? Well, the answer in our passage, I believe, is through worship. So much of this passage is related to worship, to the sacrifices in the tabernacle, to the priesthood, to the the festivals and, and Sabbaths, because that's how God's people will become holy. They are to observe a weekly Sabbath where they rest from work and draw near together to worship the Lord. And what we see is that this is a holy gathering. So in Leviticus 23, verse 3, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. There to observe all sorts of other feasts. We don't have time to do a deep dive on them there in chapter 23. There's the Passover feast, first fruits, booths, weeks, trumpets, finally the Day of Atonement. And what you see is that these feasts, these festivals, these holidays are repeatedly referred to as a holy convocation, a holy gathering. You see it there in 23, verse 24, chapter 23, verse 27, chapter 23, verse 35, Chapter 23, verse 37, over and over again, a holy convocation. The the time, the calendar of Israel was peppered weekly with a, a holy gathering every seventh day. And then all throughout the year, these different festivals and holidays that were to be these holy gatherings where people, uh, God's people would gather together to worship him and to remember his salvation. The idea is that as God's people come to the Lord, as they celebrate him, They are holy, and they're made holy. You see, when we draw near to worship the God who has saved us, we are made holy. At its heart, holiness is about worship. It's acknowledging God as God. Holiness is acknowledging God as the creator and source of all blessing and goodness. Holiness is embracing your place as his beloved son or daughter and giving glory to him. Sin is the opposite of worship. Sin is acting as if you are God, as if you have wisdom and authority, as if you're the one who created everything and has a right to determine good and evil, as if your desires ought to be obeyed at all times. Think about the big picture. We know from the rest of the Bible that the people of Israel failed terribly at executing this vision of holiness. They loved the things of Canaan. And all of the warnings in this passage eventually became prophecies. But just as Adam and Eve's failure in the garden didn't stop the Lord's plan, so Israel's failure gave way to another movement in God's salvation. He sent his own son in human flesh, the Lord Jesus, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, 
Jesus was perfectly holy, utterly loving towards God and towards his fellow man. And instead of enjoying the promises of God here, instead of enjoying all that God promises to holy people, life, peace, safety, flourishing, Jesus instead took on himself all of the curses for our disobedience. Jesus died on the cross in our place, taking our punishment on himself. He was vomited out of the land, so to speak. He experienced that, that ultimate rejection at the cross in our place. And he rose from the dead, and he's promised to return and to usher in that world where sin will be no more, where God's people will live with him in perfect, happy holiness. And so, brothers and sisters, when we come to worship the Lord each Sunday, when we rejoice and we celebrate the Lord like the people of Israel were called to do so often, when we spend time together contemplating the goodness and kindness of God, we are changed. Right? We are changed as we behold his glory and his love. Isn't that your experience? If you're a Christian, coming Sunday after Sunday together, have you ever had the experience of as we sing and as we pray and as we hear God's word, as we worship the Lord, have you ever had the experience of thinking, sin is so stupid? Why do I keep doing that? Have you ever had the experience of coming to the Lord's table, enjoying his presence and celebrating his salvation, and, and feeling sin become so unattractive to you? Sterling Park Baptist, we are called to be holy people, no less so than ancient Israel. And that's going to happen as we draw near to the Lord in faith, as they were called to do. It will happen as we encounter God in worship, as we rehearse together his works and celebrate his salvation. And so let's come now to the Lord's table together in that light as a holy people, as a people who love him and his ways, who celebrate his salvation, and who look forward to life with him forever. First, let's pray. Our God, you are a holy God, delightful, beautiful, powerful, loving in every way. We see how far short we have fallen of your standard. We see the great grace and mercy that you have given to us in providing the Lord Jesus so that we might be cleansed, so that we might be considered holy in your sight. Holy Spirit, we do ask that you would be powerfully at work among us, that you would help us to love the way we've been loved, that we would live in ways that are consistent with your character and your holiness and your presence in our midst. Holy Spirit, would you help us to worship and to be changed? And would you keep us until that great day when, when all of the promises of the book of Leviticus all the way through the book of Revelation come to pass and we will be in the presence of our God forever? And we ask that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus, and do all those things. And we pray in your name. Amen.